Hello, and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. You know, I was thinking, even if we didn't even have everything set up for this Sunday, even if I didn't have a microphone or a sound system, I'll just scream the good news, right? I'll just scream because we're a church that's all in. We're hungry. We're passionate, and as your pastor and as your shepherd, part of my heart is to raise up this body, is to disciple you guys in such a way that you're desperate for the presence of God. I want you to be desperate for the presence of God, not for a production of God. So we don't, all this stuff is nice, but we don't need it, right? As our team of pastors met together this week, uh, we started kind of discussing the series and, and planning what we wanted to do, and... Um, Man, we decided to jump into a series called Desperation, and really the plan is over the next couple of weeks is to go through some stories um, in the scriptures that highlight those who were desperate to encounter their creator. So my plan is to run through some of these stories with you guys, and what I hope this series does for you is in you it causes a new hunger to rise up in your soul to encounter God. Um... So I'm going to jump right into the word, and I'll pray first, and then we'll get after it. Does that sound good? All right. Jesus, we love you. Father, I thank you for what you're already doing in this place, what you've already done. And Lord, I just pray right now that you begin to open up hearts to receive your word in a divine way. God, I pray that you would use me in a divine way. Just a broken vessel. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just anoint me right now as we open up your word. We love you. Be glorified this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So long story short, Moses is meeting with God on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, okay? And the Israelites, they're down in camp. He's traveling. He's wandering through the desert with the Israelite clan, okay? So they're down in camp. And at this point, God has given them the, a command. Don't make any, like, don't worship any other gods other than me. So Moses, he's the leader, he's the captain of the team, he's the Tom Brady of the Patriots, okay, whatever, you know, just using analogies here, just using analogies. He's up on the mountain and they, and they come to Aaron, who's his right-hand man, you could say Antonio Brown or something like that, I don't know, just analogies, just analogies. So he comes up, all the people, they start to get, they're, they're like, Moses has been up there for 40 days and 40 nights, he's taken forever. We don't know what happened to him. And they come to Aaron, who's Moses' right-hand man, who, who, who God, God gave uh, Aaron to Moses, right, to help him in his endeavors. And they come to Aaron, who's supposed to be a man of God, and they say, make, make something we can worship. Make a God for us. Do something. Remember, what was God's command? Don't worship any other gods. And Aaron, like a moron, goes, okay, everyone bring me your jewelry. I'll do it. So he puts together, we know the story, if you're familiar with the scriptures, right? He pieces together, they melt down the jewelry, and they make a golden calf. And while Moses is up on the mountain, um, camp basically turns into a nightclub, and the Israelites begin to do what the kids would say is turn up, okay? Yep, naughty dancing, drinking too much, the whole bit. They're having a little too much fun. Remember, God specifically commanded, don't worship any other things. And they're worshiping this calf, giving it praise. So in brief, the Israelites are rebelling against God. And Moses, remember now, Moses, he's communicating with God. Moses is the mediator, right? 
God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. So God speaks to Moses. And what I love about the scriptures, especially here in Exodus 33 where we'll be, we get to eavesdrop on these conversations that Moses had with God. That's pretty amazing when you think about it, you know? So let's look here as uh, Moses and God start to chat. Let's weigh in on the conversation. Exodus 33, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them, I'll give, you, I'll give this land to your descendants. And I'll send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hevites, and the Jebusites. Go up to this land that flows with milk and honey. But check this out, and I think it's in yellow here. It says, but God says to Moses, but I will not travel among you. I'm not going with you. If I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. An interesting thought. God says to Moses, listen, I promise you this promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's awesome. You're going to love it. So get going. Take off with your people. I'll, I'll send an angel before you. Um, but I'm not going with you. I'm a little frustrated with you guys. So it goes on, Exodus 33, we'll skip down to verse 12 through 17. It says this, verse 12. So one day Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send me with. You have told me, I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember, this nation is your very own. So here we begin to see this almost like an argument, a discussion happened between Moses and God. It goes on to say, verse 14, the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. And everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said this, and this is kind of key here. He says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. God, if you're not coming, we don't want to go. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from other people on earth. Then the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked for. I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. So Moses, in essence here, he gets handed the keys to the promised land, right? You, Moses, God says, Moses, you can go take your people. He gets handed the keys. Better yet, he gets an angel escort into the land who's going to drive out the enemies before them, Right? He's on his way. He set everything they could need. All their needs will be supplied. This awesome place. But Moses, he's desperate for the presence of God. Verse 15, he says, God, if you're not there, I'm not going. Don't make us go. I don't want to be without your presence. I'm desperate to be with you. And Moses understood something. 
you know, now God has deposited his spirit within us, right? Christ ascended to the Father. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's poured out his spirit, so his spirit resides within us, right? But, but he talked about God's presence in verse 16. He says, for your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on earth. Now it's his spirit within us, dwelling within us, his Holy Spirit that he's placed within us that empowers us, sanctifies us, sets us apart. But this is before Jesus has ascended to the Father, before the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out, right? So in this instance, Moses is saying, God, it's your presence. Your presence is the only thing that matters. Your presence is the only thing that gives us life purpose. Your pr- in your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your presence, there's protection. In your presence, there is hope. I need your presence, God. God, if you don't go with us, don't make us go. And remember, this is the promised land, right? It's like Moses is saying, God, you can give me all the money, all, all the resources, the, the dream job, the dream car, even angel escort me into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But if you're not going to be there, I'd rather be stuck wandering in the desert with you. I'm desperate for you. And you know, I... Uh, Man, I thought about losing our iPads and our iMacs this week. Man, this thing's driving me crazy because it keeps making noises. But I had a couple of thoughts um, and, like, was a little ashamed after. But the thoughts were kind of like this. Man, man, we can't have a youth service if we don't have our sound system and lights and TVs hooked up. What are we going to do, right? I remember thinking, like, before everything was set up, before we got it all taken care of, I was like, man, Sunday will be a train wreck if, if we don't have our lights set up, if we don't have our IMAX. What are we going to do? And I was reminded of this book I read by Francis Chan. Uh, it's called Letters to the Church, one of the most convicting books I've ever read. If you're interested in that kind of thing, it's a good read. But Chan writes this. While we can't force people to be devoted it may be that we've made it too easy for them not to be. By trying to keep everyone interested and excited, we've created a cheap substitute for devotion. And here I am thinking about, man, I'm worried because we don't have iPads and iMacs. He goes on to say, rather than busying themselves with countless endeavors, the early followers devoted themselves to a few, and it changed the world. It seems like the Church of America is constantly looking for the next new thing. And as I kind of thought about how we were losing everything, you know, we, we, like I said, we lost our iPads and iMacs and you know, we wouldn't have been able to have our lights and the verses projected and maybe not even a sound system hooked up. Had all this stuff to do, and here I am thinking, oh, man, church is going to be awful. You know, no one's going to enjoy it, right? And it's like, and as I was kind of processing some of those thoughts, the Holy Spirit just kind of convicted me. Like this question, man, I could honestly weep thinking about it. Like this question kind of rang in my heart, Mark, am I enough? Like, is my presence 
enough. And then we have a worship set like that. Like, you got to love it. But Mark, am I enough? Could you come in here, no lights, no sound system, just my people gathered in my presence learning about my word? Would that satisfy your soul? Convicting, man. And I already said it, but seriously, like I could weep thinking like for a moment I doubted that just his presence in this place would, would be enough would be suitable. But don't get me wrong, man. I, I love our services. I do. I love our worship team. I love that we can show graphics and videos and have the verses on the screen. I love our coffee. You know, I think our coffee's awesome. I already had two of them this morning. Come on. But, you know, being honest as your pastor and not trying to offend you, just trying to keep it 100, as the kids would say, I don't want any of those things to be the reason you come. I don't. My heart is that we would be a church that's deeply in love and desperate to know Jesus. And man, I would hope that, you know, even if the lights didn't work, even if we didn't have the screens, we would still come in here and close our eyes and raise both hands and call on our God, man, and just love on him because his presence would be enough. I love this verse, Colossians. Uh, it's found in chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. It says this. It says, the Son, this is talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The, the last part, check this out. It says, all things were created through him and for him. Like, we have to grab hold of the fact this morning that we were created through him and for him. It's the very reason we were created. We better be able to come in here and worship the thing we were created through and created for. Right? Are we desperate to know Jesus? Are we desperate to live in step with God's spirit? Church, are we desperate? I think it was last week we looked at Acts 2 where Peter gives this amazing sermon, right? The, the Holy Spirit comes in or, you know, there, it's, it's Pentecost, it's Acts chapter 2 and it's like everything starts to rattle and they're there and everybody begins to speak out and the crowd comes and Peter steps forward. You know, some, some guys in the back start joking about how they're drunk and Peter steps forward. He goes, boy, I'm not drunk. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he takes them through the whole line. You've got to remember, the Jewish people at this time, they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the anointed one. And Peter's like, y'all missed it. He was already here in fact you crucified him he's this powerhouse sermon and the way I kind of envisioned it myself I just you know Peter standing there after it like yeah so I'm not even going to ask you to close your eyes and raise your hand who wants Jesus right and the way I kind of envisioned it he's just standing there and someone from the back yells out what do we need to do? That's what the scriptures say. What do we need to do? I believe you. Amen. And, and Peter, anyone remember how Peter replies? He goes, repent. Be baptized. Repent and be baptized 
Church, I, I want to make a suggestion this morning that repentance, if you're taking notes, Ryan Huff, I see you writing, you can write this one. Repentance is the foundation of desperation. It's where we got to start. We got to repent. We got to start with repentance. It's the foundation of desperation. Kim, could I have you come jump up on the keys if you wouldn't mind? Um, a few, I, th- I think a few months back, it was one of the first messages that I spoke here. I talked about David and Bathsheba. And if you don't remember it, that's okay. I'm only slightly offended. But for, for those who don't know, David in Scripture, he's known, as, he's known as what? What's David known as? Man after God's own heart. What a title, man. What a title to have. But when you look at David's life, you know, and you look at some of the things he did, like, I, I don't know if it was necessarily his behavior always that got him that title. You know, like, it was just because he did everything perfect. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. In fact, David was, he messed up pretty good, right? Like I said, you might remember a few months back, we talked about David and Bathsheba. And and for those who aren't familiar, that's okay. Man, I'm going to run through the story really quick. Uh, You know, David takes a stroll out on his balcony. He's supposed to be in battle. And he sees Bathsheba, and he's like, yo, girl, you know, won't get into details. She's bathing. You know, he sees it, and he's like, he sends for her. He wants to find out about her. He has her come over. They Netflix and chill, you know. Be mature, guys, okay? <laughs> Bathsheba ends up pregnant. The only problem is she's married, and her husband's where David's supposed to be, out on the battlefield make matters worse David knew she was married before it all went down but he still did it then to make the story even worse he he brings home her husband tries to manipulate him into Netflixing and chilling with his wife right but he's he's a soldier he's loyal he refuses to so David has a backup plan he hands him in essence a death letter right the guy's name is Uriah He goes, Uriah, I want you to give this note. Don't open it. Don't read it. That would be awkward. But I want you to give this to your commander. So Uriah goes back to battle, hands the commander the envelope. And the envelope is is a letter from David telling the commander, put Uriah at the front line so he'll just, he'll die. David, in essence, is having him murdered so he doesn't have to deal with the consequences of his sin. This is David man after God's own heart, right? He, he's an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. This is heavy stuff. This, this is no minor mistake. But if you're familiar with the story, um, God then sends a prophet, Nathan, to have a conversation. And Nathan calls David out in his sin. But what's really, really awesome in the scriptures in Psalm 51, we get to see uh, basically some poetry David wrote, a prayer David wrote after this endeavor with Bathsheba. So I want to crack this open. And uh, I I think as we read this letter, we, we gain clarity as to why David was a man after God's own heart. Even after committing such shameful acts, David wrote this psalm after committing adultery. It says this, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. David writing, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. 
because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. I I love this line right here. It says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you and you alone I have sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. I love that. I I, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Continues on. I'll skip down to verse 7. Verse 7 through 11. It says, Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And then, you know, it's kind of similar to what Moses was saying. Verse 11, he says, don't banish me from your presence. Remember Moses, right? God, if you're not going to go, we don't want to go without you. David says, don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's desperate for God. This desperate cry, God, I don't want to be without your presence, Lord. But what we see in both stories is that rebellion against God, the, the sin of man, it has the ability to create this separation between man and God. And it, it had been creating separation since Adam and Eve. But church, I want to ask you this morning, do we recognize our rebellion and are we repenting? Because this is where we, if we're going to be a church that's desperate for God, we got to be a repenting church. Amen? And I see in the scriptures that great moves of God often are preceded by repentance. I think of that verse from 2 Chronicles, right? It says, if my people pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. If you turn from your wicked ways, then I'll heal their land and forgive their sin. So really quick, in just these last few minutes, man, I just kind of wanted to talk about what what does repentance look like? Everyone, you see those white cards on your seat? Everyone, those white cards, they were around. They should have been on the seat around you. Hang on to that. Maybe find a pen if you can. I'll give you some time to get it while I'm talking to you. But just hang on to that card for a second. The Webster Dictionary defines repentance as this, feeling so much sorrow for the past that it leads to an amendment of one ways. I'm feeling so much sorrow that it changes the way I do life. That's how it defines repentance. So church, I just really quick, I want to help you understand what does authentic repentance look like? When we we look at God's word, what does authentic repentance look like? I'm brought to James 4. I think this verse is so good. It says this, James 4, verses 7 through 10. It says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Check this out. It says, let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor a couple things I want to point out about this verse here we got to 
humble ourselves before God? Are are we willing to recognize our rebellion or do we ignore it? Are, Are we willing to say, God, I was wrong. God, I'm struggling. God, I need your help. God, I'm addicted. God, I'm broken. God, I'm unworthy. I recognize my rebellion. And when we do, are we running to God when we mess up, when we fall short, and we all do? Are we running to God or are we hiding? Notice the verse, it says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And then it goes on to say, draw close to God and he'll draw close to you. This verse tells me that I can't pursue the things of the devil, right, and pursue the things of God. I can't pursue the things of the world and draw near to God. So if I'm drawing near from God, then I'm fleeing from the devil. But here's the hope. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Someone needs to hear this. When you draw close to God, you you can't draw near. But, But it says if you resist him, he will flee from you. That sounds like breakthrough to me. Have you had a struggle? are you falling short maybe if we draw near to God eventually that boy's got to flee amen draw close to God you'll watch the devil flee it may not happen on day one it may not happen on day two but God's word is true and I believe it and it says if you resist him he'll flee from you you used to struggle you used to be tempted But as you draw near to God, you will gain victory. We all mess up. We all stumble. You know? And I think sometimes in our shame and in our guilt, we think if we start hanging out, if we start going to church, if we start worshiping, we'll be rejected by God. I want to encourage you this morning. When you stumble, when you mess up, in the middle of your struggle, it's the best time to present yourself to Jesus and say, hey, I I can't clean myself. I, I need you to help me out. And I don't think our sin is and our shame is something we need to continuously live in and remind ourselves of. But I also believe when we're authentically repentant, when we truly repent, our rebellion breaks our heart. We see that with David. Right? We see that in James. James, it writes, let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and, and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of joy and laughter. Or I'm sorry, and let there, I'm sorry, let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Church, I want to ask you, does it break your heart when you rebel against God? Like, does it break our heart? And if our sin doesn't break our heart, are we truly aware of our rebellion? Webster's Dictionary, feeling so much sorrow, it leads to an amendment of our ways church here's where I think we've got it wrong and I know we're running short on time here but but I think you know I think our rebellion oftentimes it does I think it does cause deep sorrow I think it does cause shame and guilt I, I think we recognize our rebellion but I think where we've got it wrong is we've tried to fix it on our own Right, Like if I can just work harder, if I can just clean myself up, if I can just uh, clench my fists a little tighter, if I can just put my foot down, then I'll be good. And I want to tell you this morning, you'll never be good without Jesus. If you could have been good without Jesus, he wouldn't have died for you. In that last part of the verse, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. And you know the most humbling act you can do as a, as a believer, as anyone, 
is to, is to say a little confession that sounds like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm wrong. You know what, I, I can't do it. You know what, I, I need help. I need a savior because I can't do it on my own. So I think that's what it looks like to humble yourself before the Lord. You know, a few, few weeks back, I talked about stealing a t-shirt from Marshalls as a kid. Yeah, not good. Kids don't do that. And, uh, you know, it, it might sound stupid, but to me, it just was kind of this visual I had in my head. I thought about that young boy, you know, like, just stole a t-shirt. Uh, I'm with my group of friends, and none of them stole a t-shirt, right? And, and I get caught with this t-shirt walking out of the store. And here I am, caught, like, caught with my sin, Ca- caught with my sin, caught with my shame hanging on to it following the marshals worker back to my punishment back to my discipline just thinking man like as my friends get to walk off free they're not struggling with it they they don't have the same struggles i do they're good here i am i got this man i messed up i'm broken hanging on to my t-shirt and the visual i has is this little boy you know, he gets interrupted by Jesus. It's like a little mark. It might sound stupid to you guys, but it's like Jesus walks up and says, hey, give me your shirt. Give me the shirt. It's like, no, nah, no, nah, this is me. No, nah, I won't do it again. No, nah, I'll fix it. I'll, I'll get it. He says, no, nah, nah, son, give me the shirt. Give me the shirt. Right? And, and how many of us are in here this morning hanging on to our shirt? Like, nah, nah, I don't want to tell anybody about this. Nah, if people knew this, if people, if we just watch everybody walk off free, everyone else is good, man, but I got, I got this, you know? So on that piece of paper, I, I just want to ask you, like, what shirt are you holding on to this morning? What do you just need to hand over to the cross? Church, if we're gonna see, if we're gonna become desperate for God, if we want to see God move through this church like we never have, and move through us as believers in such a way, what, what do we need to repent of? Where do we start? What shirt are we hanging on to? Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me slash give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.